The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. China is something that actually unites Republicans and Democrats. We have a huge problem with cybersecurity and it's growing. We've got to have wealthier people and corporations paying more of a fair share. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. President Biden likes to be the big thing. He likes to put out the big concepts. There's still a long way to go with this flat tax. We have to break the partisan bond. This isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an American issue. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. 3.5 trillion. That is the number of the day, the top line number for a Democrat-backed package loaded with President Joe Biden's priorities. We break down what those numbers mean and what lawmakers have planned for that package. We'll also be speaking today with Congresswoman Sherry Bustos on infrastructure and Congressman French Hill on today's high profile hearing with Jerome Powell. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my fellow Bloomberg government co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. We have a great lineup today. Well, I'm Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick. Joining us now are our Bloomberg superstar contributors, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. Uh, We're going to kick it off with the discussion of sort of the news that has captured Washington's attention throughout all of today. Democrats coming to an agreement on the top line funding for their spending package. This is the package, if you remember, we got sort of the two tracks. We got one track with bipartisan infrastructure. We're looking over today for just a minute at that other track, which is the Democrat-backed bill. They don't need any Republicans to support it. And we got a few more details this afternoon about what exactly is going to be in this bill. There's too much stuff for me to list all of it, but let me try and give you all a top-line preview. We have an expanded child tax credit. We got paid family and medical leave. We have funding for affordable housing, for nutrition assistance. There's a clean energy standard in there. There's federal procurement for technologies using renewable energy. There's lowering prescription drug prices. There's permanent status for immigrants. I think I've bombarded you with enough at this point. And Jack, uh, the one thing, though, that's really critical right now, the one question that everyone is asking that we have started to see answered today is how will it all be paid for. Lawmakers yeah. did give us a preview at a few of those things. What's the answer to that? Anything that, that really caught your attention or, or surprised you about what they put forward? Well, they want a three-prong ap- approach on pay-fors, and I still think pay-fors are the most difficult part of this. So the, the thing to watch for is is any of this uh, sort of a gimmicky kind of thing rather than a real tax hike. Uh, there was a document out from a senior Democratic aide in Congress sort of listing the basics. We don't have a bill yet, but we have basically their ideas. One One of the three prongs is taxes, corporate tax rate increase. They didn't say the specific rate. And, you know, Joe Manchin doesn't want the 28 percent, maybe something like 25 percent. High income taxes uh, would be higher in some way. Still don't have the details. IRS enforcement is supposed to bring in some more money. But the other prongs are, one, health care savings. Uh, They are uh, looking to for some of the health care measures to lower the uh, cost of prescription drugs. And then the other one that I think is going to get some complaints from 
fiscal conservatives is they describe long-term economic growth as a pay-for. That is code for dynamic scoring, which basically means they hope that the Congressional Budget Office uh, gives them credit for economic growth and therefore more revenue based on the money they're spending. That can be a, a little bit gimmicky. That's the kind of thing, you know, earlier today we talked to Maya McGinnis from the uh, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. She's got concerns about that kind of thing. That's probably going to be one of the more uh, controversial parts of this if they're depending a lot on dynamic scoring. But I'm curious, you know, Jeannie, you've been sort of the realist on the chances of infrastructure and the pay-fors they, they uh, could struggle with there. What do you think of the pay-for ideas of this next reconciliation package? And, and based on what we've heard, I mean, do you think this is actually fully paid for, like they've said, or is this kind of halfway gimmicks, halfway pay-fors? Well, you and Emily just gave the best overview of what's in this thing that we know so far and how they're saying it's going to be paid for. So I applaud you both. It's a Thank lot you. to take in. And I, there's there's half the stuff in the here that I didn't even mention. Emily, <laughs> it's amazing what that amount of money can do for you. <laughs> but, you know, the, the dynamic scoring is a term I love, and I think it's one you said so accurately, Jack, that's going to jump out, and I think that's where they're going to hold, sort of hold their breath for the CBO to see how that is going to come out. Um, you know, I do think this is, you know, what was expected. How else do you pay for something? You raise taxes, you through enforcement, through savings, or you simply say infrastructure is an investment and we don't have to pay for it. And I think that is absolutely a valid statement. But of course, you have moderates like Joe Manchin who have wanted it to be paid for. And Democrats did say yesterday and today, this thing will all be paid for to, you know, sort of assure these moderates, because as we've talked about many times, they can't afford to lose any in the Senate and probably there's just a 3.3 Democrat margin in the House by this time this thing gets there. Yeah, I want to actually keep, stay for a minute on the Senate because while we haven't seen any Democrat come out and say absolutely not yet, we there are a few Democrats who aren't yet really on board with this plan. Uh, no prizes for guessing who. We're seeing Senate's moderates like Senators Joe Manchin, John Tester. Uh, they still have a couple concerns about the bill. Obviously, we're at the point where we're seeing a top line number. We're getting some details about what's in it. But let's be clear, uh, the budget resolution that we're talking about this is the basically an outline for what will be budget reconciliation and so there are many many more details left to come in this process uh, rick davis uh, i mean talk to us just generally here about what we're going to be seeing going forward in this process i mean are am i am i wrong to be focusing on this 3.5 trillion dollar number how much can that might change in the negotiations over the next few months yeah, well, as you know, um, uh, Senator Sanders has been talking about a $6 trillion number. So I think that $3.5 trillion, it's an immense amount of spending, right? This is historic. Um, and, and, and it kind of brings back all the old lines that Republicans used against Democrats for a long time, tax and spend Democrats. This is tax and spending. Um, and, and, and we're just scratching the surface, as you point out, as to what's in this bill. So it could get bigger. Um, there could be some savings, but I can't imagine once they get this number out, uh, the 3.5 trillion, that they're going to want to back it down. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, Mansion and Tester, both of whom are on the Appropriations Committee and will have the responsibility, you know, for working on this reconciliation package, are going to have enormous influence both on what goes into the bill 
but also how the pay-fors work. And so I think you're seeing the very beginning of this. But the process is this is a chance to get this thing out. They're going to go on recess in a couple of weeks, and they're going to be back in their home states. You know, the month of August is, is usually the time they try to connect with some of the folks at home. A lot of states have schools that start toward the end of August, and, and, and they're going to try and sell this and sell it hard. Um, and, uh, and, and they'll be back in September after Labor Day with a report saying we're either in trouble or let's, dr let's start grinding through on this process. So if I can fast forward a little bit to when we get a little closer to the finish line and they actually turn this into a bill rather than this outline, one of the sort of threatening things for Democrats who have all of these ambitious plans is that when you try to pass a major bill through the reconciliation process, you don't need Republican votes, but you do need the Senate parliamentarian on your side. You are technically only supposed to be passing budgetary measures, tax and spend, that kind of thing. Uh, looking through some of the things that have come up elements, at least elements of the PRO Act on uh, that it is broadly meant to strengthen unions are supposed to be in there. There is expected, Bernie Sanders has said there's going to be some sort of immigration reform in there. Those things that are sort of regulatory uh, could very well get pulled out. Jeannie, what do you think? I, I mean, what are the biggest risks in this bill for things that could just get pulled out and how much of this actually can be done through this reconciliation process? I think that along with the scoring, those are the two big questions and I'm so glad you raised that because on reconciliation, the bird rule restricts what is included in there. You can't have things that are extraneous to the budget and so that is a big challenge in a bill that is going to be as big as this one promises to be just listening to what Emily laid out, which is only a partial list of what might be in there. You could certainly see the parliamentarian saying one or two of these things won't go through. And let's not forget, if I can just raise, remember the corn husker kickback, uh, the concession to Nebraska Senator Ben Nelson during the uh, Affordable Care Act? This is what we're going to be seeing throughout this summer, because when you can't lose a Democrat in the Senate or the House, uh, presumably, then right. people can sort of vie for what they want. If things are pulled out, they can pull their support. That's the big risk here for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Yeah, they've got very, very tight margins to work with in the Senate and in the House as well. It's really only three to four Democrats in the House that Pelosi can afford to lose. Uh, real quickly here, I do want to touch on another sort of bigger story. Bloomberg David's Weston spoke with Bank of America chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan about the company's second quarter earnings and the process of getting employees back to the office as the Delta variant crops up. Let's listen to that sound real quick. We asked people starting a few months ago, load the vaccine tool, upload your card, and because we needed that proof to be able to plan. So we said July, August, and September, gave them a tool to say, pick which month you want to come back. They're, they're picking that, some, some coming back immediately, and we had a town hall today in person with people. It was, it was wonderful to see some of my colleagues that literally I haven't seen since you know, February or March of last year. And so we're trying to get the people back. You know, Rick, I, I want to toss it to you real quick here. I mean, as we're seeing the Delta variant continue to spread, uh, how, uh, do, or to a certain sense, are CEOs and other office managers factoring that into some of these return plans? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> I think, the, and, and it's the contingency that what if there's a Epsilon variant, you know, and things like that. There, there, there is a monitoring system that many big corporations with thousands of employees are really contemplating as to sort of how do we keep healthy the employees that are inside uh, and, and how do we manage those who don't want to come back right away or have not been inoculated and not gotten the vaccine. 
because the last thing they want is unvaccinated people wandering around the halls. And yet there are a lot of sensitivities about what you can require or not require. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, thank you for joining us. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Emily Wilkins, my co-host and fellow Bloomberg government reporter. We are in uh, today in Joe's stead. Uh, We're doing a little bit of a Bloomberg government takeover, too, because we're pulling in Ken Doyle, who covers money and politics for BGov. And we really wanted to talk to him about uh, the the most interesting fundraising numbers uh, for the second quarter for members of the House and Senate. And one thing that really stood out and got a lot of attention when these numbers came out was Liz Cheney. Big, big numbers over just three months for Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Uh, 1.88 million, almost $2 million over the course of three months. And of course, Liz Cheney is the Congresswoman who lost her spot as House Republican Conference Chair amid her criticisms of former President Trump, especially in his role leading up to the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Uh, She lost her spot uh, in Republican leadership to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who also pulls in some money, but actually less. It's interesting to see Elise Stefanik raises one and a half million dollars in the second quarter. Uh, Liz Cheney outpaces her by almost four hundred thousand dollars. But what does that mean? Uh, Because we were talking about Liz Cheney as this uh, woman in exile, politically almost. Ken, what do you make of of these numbers that, I mean, clearly Liz Cheney has some significant appeal to someone. Does this actually tell us anything about her place in the Republican Party, or what's your takeaway here? Yeah, no, I think think it it does, Jack. Yeah, um, it's, um, you know, it's interesting to look at the where the money's coming from. And I, I just happened to look at, the, you know, the latest uh, quarterly reports. It's a similar story to what happened in the first quarter for Cheney. She raised, I think, $1.5 million. She raised more than that, even more than that in the second quarter. But she is being supported by uh, traditional Republican donors in terms of um, PACs. She got like 300000 from PACs in the first quarter. She's been supported by larger donors, lobbyists, and, and traditional um, larger Republican donors. Who, So I think that clearly shows, you know, that she's, there's, there's institutional support within the party for Cheney. Um, and, and then to look at Stefanik, um, she's getting the Trump support. She's getting half of her, more than half of her money was from smaller donors, unitemized uh, contributions. And that's the grassroots uh, Trump supporters that are right. that are, um, and this is the power I think that Trump has is that he can direct yeah. his supporters to certain candidates, and and that's it's a really interesting effect to look. I mean, overall, there's another factor which is that these two were just in the news, and what you see is right. that people, candidates, and lawmakers that are in the news, whether they have tough races or not, whether they're challenged or not, they. Um, you know, people in an era of online fundraising, when you can just read a story about somebody and say, oh, I like this person, I'm going to 
click on something and, and give them some money, um, you know, we've seen that phenomenon, which is contributing to, you know, a huge increase in everybody being right. funded. But um, So uh, obviously yeah, she's... She's got a broad appeal. I, I do have to ask, though, in the state of Wyoming, what do you do with so many millions of dollars? I know Liz Cheney is facing primary challenges. Uh, this yeah. is not exactly a massive media market. She's not running in New York. Yeah. Uh, it, it, does this just expand her influence? Does she end up giving this away? Does this actually help her reelection? Or what, what do you do with no, 1.9 I mean, and a quarter uh, in the state of Wyoming? It's a great question. Um, I do think that, you know, um, she will spend it. She'll spend it to try and get reelected. She's obviously determined to try and get reelected, and I think it's very important to her. So I would, I would guess she's going to spend every penny that she raises. And, and you know, it's going to be a fairly cheap media market, and I think the people in Wyoming are going to see lots of TV ads featuring uh, Liz right. Cheney, right? I mean, that's she's going to be, you know, and this is... Um, and and certainly it'll I think it'll help her. I mean I, that's why people raise and spend so much money. They think that um, uh, that advertising, especially if it's done right and, and the right kind of message, that you can affect votes. So um, uh, and and I think that uh, and also you know maybe others maybe the people opposing her will also be able to raise money because right. you know, because of the, the Trump feud. So so I think can there'll I- be a lot of ads in Wyoming. Again, I also noticed uh, that Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who besides Cheney is the most outspoken anti-Trump member of the House Republican Party, also saw a pretty large fundraising haul last quarter. And I'm trying to, to wrap my head around whether this means that there is a lot of support within the Republican Party for this anti-Trump sentiment, or if I'm a anti-Trump Republican, I only have limited options as far as lawmakers to do, uh, donate to because so many lawmakers in Congress have, have remained, Republicans in Congress have remained very loyal to Trump. Which Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a good point, too, that maybe, maybe just because there are so few. And I do think that there are people, you know, that, that consider themselves Republicans and even Republican donors who, who don't support um, Trump and what he did, you know, don't support the, 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 the riot at the Capitol, the questioning of election results, all of the stuff that's happened. Um, you know, it, there are people that are saying, I don't, I don't like this and I want to support the, you know, those few who are, who are opposing it. So, yeah, I think that that's, that, that's certainly part of it, that there's, there's just not that many. And it, it's interesting to me, too, that it's coming, you know, from within kind of traditional Republican circles in, in Washington, things like PACs and, and, um, and, and like I said, the grassroots might be uh, shifting towards the towards the Trump Republicans. So. Right. Ken, uh, great points. Really interesting uh, to get your takeaway on the latest fundraising numbers. That was Ken Doyle, who covers money and politics for Bloomberg Government. Well, you know, obviously I know that we have been, uh, Jack and I, as well as I think basically throughout all of Bloomberg and out all of the media, really talking a lot today about this $3.5 trillion number. And I just want to take a minute, Jack, and just sort of drill down into that a little bit more because I feel like we've been yeah. talking about about infrastructure, we've been talking about reconciliation, and we've done this for so long. And you know, we all got you know big news last night with the number being announced. But Jack, what does this really mean for the process? Because we still have quite a ways to go yeah. before we're going to be seeing any sort of bill actually signed into law. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out how to explain this. This is the most complicated stuff they do in Washington. But it, basically, if you're listening, wondering if your taxes are going to be raised or if there's going to be a 
massive uh, benefit to you in some way. This is the first round of a two-round process, and keep in mind the margins are so narrow in the House and Senate, both are tough. Basically what they do is they vote on the framework that gives directions to committees and says you've got three and a half trillion dollars to work with, we want to pay for it fully. Uh, that is easier for moderates to vote for because it doesn't have all the details. They do though then have to eventually vote on a piece of legislation uh, with all of the details that tends to be the tougher one to get to. Uh, it's good news for Democrats today though because they had this at least handshake deal on some of the rough numbers and I would point out Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi, this is an agreement among Senate Democrats, but Nancy Pelosi put out a letter to her colleagues saying, Every member can be proud of the priorities in this budget. Uh, this budget agreement is a victory for the American people. So there does to be, uh, appear to be some uh, bicameral unity among Democrats. Bicameral unity, always a, a positive thing uh, when you're looking at margins that are as narrow as the ones that we're currently encountering. Well, we now have on the line joining us here for Sound On, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, Democrat from the western part of Illinois, and one of the few Democrats who has able to represent a district that voted not once but twice for former President Donald Trump. So she comes from a very uh, politically ideologically uh, diverse district. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. You've been in your district for the last two weeks as we've continued to hear developments about the infrastructure bill, about this reconciliation package that has all these different priorities in it. Talk to me a little bit about what you are hearing. How are the people in Western Illinois interpreting what's going on right now in D.C.? Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Jack. Really appreciate you having me on. Um, I, I think if there's a word of the year of this this cycle, um, it is that uh, it would be results. Um, you know, we have an opportunity to show the American people what Democrats can do for them. Uh, we now have a very, very, as you pointed out, a very slim majority in the House. We have a very, even more, even a slimmer majority in the Senate, and we have Joe Biden in the White House. So. Uh, but that means that we've got to, um, we, we have the votes, but we just have to uh, really follow this very narrow path to get this done. And in the end, we've got to deliver. And in this case, we've got to deliver big. And that's what we're, we're on the track to do. Well, Congresswoman, I know that you not only know how to win in a swing district, but you are also head of the Democrats' campaign arm for the 2020 election. So you've really sort of viewed winning the House on a national level. You know, when I talk to your progressive colleagues, they argue that we need the biggest possible reconciliation possible to help Democrats keep that House in 2022. But then I've heard some more fiscally conservative colleagues of yours say that bigger packages are going to be a problem. And I'm wondering, when it, when it comes strictly just talking about the, the 2022 midterms, I know you won't be running again, but you sort of, you know the outlay, you know what wins elections. Should Democrats be trying to get as much as they can in this bill? And is a smaller whittled down bill going to hurt Democrats when it comes to the midterms? Again, I'll, I'll get back to saying we've got to deliver here. And um, it, when you have such a slim majority, um, it, it means that there's going to be compromises. And we cannot, I don't care what your politics are, we cannot look at this as anything like I'm, I'm only going to vote yes if I have, you know, all, whatever it is, all these huge things or all these small things, depending on who, where you are politically. We've got to get, we've got to get it done. Um, that's the expectation of folks at home is, uh, 
Joe Biden is in the White House. The, we, we've got uh, Chuck Schumer as the leader in the Senate. We have Nancy Pelosi as the uh, Speaker of the House. And, hey, as Democrats, let's deliver. And um, to the point of delivering big, it, it, it means that we are talking about things like the uh, tax credit. We're talking about universal pre-K. We are talking about starting tomorrow that you're going to have uh, families all over this country see an extra $300 or so in their accounts uh, through this brand-new child tax credit. Uh, but it is getting all of those sort of things done. Um, and uh, it, it is really I, – I, I'm not one of these people. And the reason I've been able to win um, as, as much as a 24-point margin in a Trump district is because I understand that this is about, uh, about delivering. It's not about um, arguing and, and saying uh, no to things that, uh, that, that maybe ideally um, aren't perfect. But we just got to get the job done. Congresswoman, I was wondering what would be the toughest thing to sell in a rural district that we've heard from uh, at least the Senate Democrats on this. And I, I'm, I'm curious about the climate stuff. You know, in these bullet points that we're starting to see, we don't have a whole piece of legislation, but we're we're hearing talk of essentially a tax on carbon heavy imports. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious how you sell uh, the the ambitious climate agenda that we may see packed into this reconciliation bill to rural, moderate, or even conservative America? I, I think even um, folks like our family farmers understand the impact of what's happening with our climate. Um, the entire western border of the district that I represent is the Mississippi River. And um, we, have th- we have seen massive flooding um, in past years. Right now, we've got drought that is starting to emerge in, um, in places like Illinois, obviously in the, uh, in the West and in the, um, you know, the states of uh, Washington and Oregon and starting to go to the, uh, through the plains now. So we see the impact even from a, from a farm perspective of what climate is doing. And so uh, I, I think Joe Biden is approaching this in a way that makes a lot of sense that, that uh, doing things in a way that will not harm our environment and, and get on a path to helping the environment. I think we can sell that uh, because climate change, um, when it, it, it hurts our farmers, and I've long worked uh, to, to bring some solutions to, to rural America. In fact, I wrote uh, a plan called the Rural Green Partnership and, uh, it, it, as a way to say, hey, don't point your fingers at us in the, in the Midwest or at our family farmers and say we're part of the, the solution or part of the problem because we can be part of the solution and we want to see it at the table and things like biofuel um, and uh, and cover crops and things that maybe if you if you live in um, you know downtown New York or uptown or whatever you call it in New York uh, maybe that doesn't mean anything to them but but biofuels means a lot to corn country and um, and bio in you know so so that can be part of the solution and um, and so I, I think we can sell this in a way that makes a ton of sense. Well, you, I, I think you could get biofuels maybe if you uh, wait out back behind a McDonald's in, uh, in in New York. I think that's a possibility. I, I do want to ask you. <laughs> yeah, um, you mentioned farms, family farms. In the bullet points that we've gotten from a senior Democratic aide uh, privy to these Senate Democratic talks. In the tax pay-fors, there's actually supposed to be a carve-out, it says, for family farms. I would imagine that could be important as it pertains to the estate tax. What are your priorities in terms of uh, how family farms are treated in any tax measures here? 
Well, you, you know, obviously all of this still needs to be negotiated, but uh, as it stands right now, the resolution would explicitly prohibit tax increases on families making mm-hmm. under 400000 a year and small businesses and family farms. Right. And, uh, I, I, again, I think that's part of selling this. In the end, um, if we get this done, this is going to be – this this is going to help our family farmers. It's going to help our families. It's going to help our small businesses. Um, and it's going to uh, – I, I think we're going to get back to the days – you know, I come from a long line of family farmers myself, although I did not grow up on a farm. And I still remember my dad uh, saying that the only time he saw his father, who was a hog farmer, uh, cry was when um, my, my dad, as a, as a kid, and his mom – went out to the the farm when when my grandpa was out there and told him that um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had died and um, because the farmers knew how much he did for them this democratic president of the United States how much he did for the family farmers I think you know this is a legacy piece of legislation that um, as we look back on this if we get this done we're going to be able to get folks like our family farmers back um, understanding that Democrats are there for them um, they're going to understand that we're fighting to, to use more mm-hmm. ethanol, to use more biofuels, to use things like cover crops to help mm-hmm. our environment, um, to help our, our not just our family farmers, but those small businesses in, in rural America. Yeah, um, I think see, we can win them back by, deliver, by delivering. And, and when you see where President Biden has gone to sell this bill, he has gone to a number of rural areas to talk about it. Uh, and, and Congresswoman, I know that obviously the, the big news of the day has happened on this Democrat-only multi-layer reconciliation package, but we still do have the infrastructure package that is being worked on. I know the attention there right now, it is in the Senate, it is with that bipartisan group trying to nail down some of the details, but you sit on the um, House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and there was the House recently passed its own bill backed by Democrats, didn't get a ton of Republican support. But I wanted to sort of get your outlook from House Democrats on combining that bill that Democrats passed with the bipartisan Senate infrastructure bill. How do you see that process going forward? Do you think that Democrats in the House are going to be open to whatever this bipartisan committee produces? I think we have to be open to it. Again, we don't have the luxury of having a 20-vote, a 30-vote, a 40-vote majority. Um, we have a very, very slim majority, and we've got to get on board with us. So however that ends up looking, I think we have to go into this with, with an open mind saying um, we're going to have to compromise. We're not going to get everything we um, want and need. But we're looking and we're living in a country now that has crumbling roads and bridges um, it, in the congressional district I serve, one in four people don't have access to high-speed Internet. Um, we can't – we are not going to advance in rural America or in America with those kind of facts and figures. You know, we desperately need investment in our infrastructure. And what we're talking about here could be the largest since World War II and will literally rebuild our country and create millions of good-paying jobs and, and boost our economy for many, many years to come. That's what we're talking about. Um, if I Very quickly, anecdotally, um, my front yard is the Mississippi River. I live on a street called River Drive. And um, every time I look out my front window and a little bit to the left, I see a $1.2 billion bridge going from Moline, Illinois to Bettendorf, Iowa. And I, I, when I walk along um, our, our parkway, I count the number of cranes that are there because I know associated with each and every one of those cranes are jobs. 
And I think about the stimulus to our economy based on that bridge going up and, um, you know, being this remarkable-looking structure that's going to be moving cars and trucks and um, goods and people for uh, generations to come. And that that's what infrastructure does. It, it is such a boost to our economy and helps the movement of goods and people. And, um, and we are just on the verge of making this happen where you can see bridges like that um, and, and roads improved all over this country. Congressman, I do want to touch very quickly. You know, Congress has a very packed schedule uh, between the appropriation bills, the debt ceiling, the infrastructure, the reconciliation. But I know that there are also a number of other things going on. I know that you and a number of uh, colleagues, uh, this is a bipartisan group, a bicameral group, did introduce legislation today uh, on sexual assault victims and, and harassment survivors. I wanted to see if you could just take a minute to touch on it, as well as talk about the likelihood, how do you get a bill? like this one, even one that has bipartisan support, through a Congress that's completely jam-packed right now with these high-level priorities? Well, um, so what this bill is very quickly is it would remove from um, any kind of contract uh, uh, what is called forced arbitration clauses. So uh, uh, what happens is, let's say you start a brand-new job, you go to the Human Resources Department, you're signing all your paperwork, to get started and you're all excited and in that fine print and you don't really really even know it until maybe you have to use this it says in there if you are sexually harassed in the workplace there's you cannot uh you cannot talk about it you cannot take it to court that there will be an arbitrator um typically paid for by the employer uh that will rule on this so what this has done for for generations now it has allowed these sexual uh, harassers and assaulters um, it has given them um, room to continue to do this um, from one person to the next person to the next person and um, so we have introduced this ending forced arbitration sexual harassment act um, and here's what's remarkable about this um, and, and as you said this is uh, we've got a bill in the Senate and the house they're they're identical um, I stood up at the podium today to announce this with not only Senator Gillibrand, Democrat from New York, but also Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina. And um, I've got a Republican co-sponsor, Morgan Griffith, out of uh, Virginia, and I'm the lead in the House as a Democrat from Illinois. So uh, why do I think we're going to be able to get this through? Because the environment is right for this. The Me Too movement is something that people understand now. Um, it is not. It is bad business uh, for these employers to have in their uh, contracts um, the, the fact that they can hide sexual harassment. That is bad business. And yet we've got 60 million Americans who are have signed basically their rights away. They're, they cannot have their day in court if they need their day in court. Um, I'm, I'm encouraged by this because uh, Senator Durbin, who is uh, not only my good friend, but also from the, the state of Illinois, he's chair of the judiciary in the Senate. And um, I'm confident that he's going to do his best to get it through. And we're going to do the same in the House through uh, Chairman Nadler in the judi judiciary. And the goal is to um, get this all the way through, send it over to uh, President Biden to get signed into law and uh, stop allowing these predators to hide in the shadows. Right. 
Congresswoman Sherry says, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, closing uh, that interview on a, a note about something that actually has a lot of bipartisan, uh, bicameral uh, support and inclusion. That was Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, Democrat from Northwestern Illinois. Let's move on now to another member of Congress. We've got Congressman French Hill, Arkansas Republican, joining us. Very happy to have him with us. He is a member of the House Financial Services Committee. Big news in that committee today, uh, obviously, being uh, Federal Reserve Board Chairman Jerome Powell's testimony. Uh, the, the word on everybody's tongue, it seems both in Washington and uh, up on Wall Street, is inflation. If it is transitory, if there is a, a, a chance at sort of a self-perpetuating long-term inflation. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. I, I just want to get first your takeaway on, uh, you know, Chairman Powell seemed to kind of play down the idea of permanent or long-term inflation. He talked about production bottlenecks. What did you make about sort of his characterizations of uh, the inflation situation? Jack, thanks for having me on. Yes, he did. He talked about uh, supply chain snafus and, and bottlenecks. But he also recognized that inflation is running much higher uh, than the Fed projected just a few months ago, almost a point higher. Secondly, he talked about potentially tapering uh, sooner rather than waiting until 2022, something he's been very uh, strongly supportive of in the past. So with Governor Waller dissenting and uh, Fed President in Dallas, Kaplan, commenting on inflation risk. I think Chair Powell is acknowledging, as I have since uh, January and February, that a yellow light is flashing here on this inflation issue. Congressman, I'm wondering, as you see your Senate Republican colleagues work on this bipartisan infrastructure bill that includes, I think, like $600 billion in new federal spending, how are you thinking about that bill in terms of inflation? Because if they do get an agreement and pass it, it is going to come to the House, and you're going to have to wind up making a decision on whether or not you approve it. So how is inflation kind of playing into your mindset on this bill? Well, these are multi-year uh, spending authorizations for surface transportation. Uh, House Republicans just two weeks ago offered our own amendment of uh, spending for surface transportation in the four or $500 billion range. This is the traditional amount uh, for bills in reauthorizing every five years surface transportation spending in the U.S. So it isn't a measured increase. I will say that with the shortage of labor, shortage of building materials, increased prices and commodities, that clearly it will cost more uh, to build a mile of paved road than it did a few years ago, uh, irrespective of the amount of money. So we will be authorizing uh, new surface transportation dollars in 2021 that will come into this uh, inflationary environment. But in my view, it's not contributing uh, to uh, that inflation uh, in a way that's material compared to the uh, market circumstances that already exist there. Uh, Congressman, how do you view the debates right now over pay-fors in the context of, uh, of inflation? You know, we're, we're hearing Democrats for the reconciliation bill talk about paying for all of it, but some of that may be dynamic scoring. There's a conversation about uh, pay-fors on the uh, bipartisan infrastructure talks. Um, I, I guess my, my main question is, one, uh, 
is all of this discussion, even from Democrats, that this should all be fully paid for an acknowledgement that we should not at this point be trying to just inject a bunch of money into the economy and we're past that stage of the recession? Uh, and two, how do you, how do you uh, sort of keep in mind the, the threat of inflation in these conversations about how to pay for major legislation? Well, uh, first, let's go back to uh, setting some basic principles. One is it's a bipartisan effort to have surface transportation improvements and some hard infrastructure uh, spending, including a broadband. But that needs to be targeted. It needs to be in keeping with past uh, areas where Congress has a track record for performance. In the Republican uh, offer in the House, it was fully paid for, including a new innovation as a pilot program for all the electric vehicles that are coming on the market, that they would have a a mileage uh, levy as an alternative to the fuel tax, for example. Uh, That's the kind of innovation that House Republicans and the Transportation Committee offered. I wouldn't call the uh, Senate bipartisan uh, compromise that they talked about with President Biden as fully paid for. Uh, There was a lot of Swiss cheese in their offsets. And certainly in Chuck Schumer's approach using reconciliation, I don't see any effort uh, to offset that spending except through very large tax increases on the productive part of the economy. And I don't know that they even have agreement, frankly, among uh, House and Senate Democrats on that approach. No, Congressman, I actually wanted to to touch a little bit on that process because that is something that's come up for debate a lot. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that if a bipartisan infrastructure plan is passed through the Senate, sent to the House, that she will hold that until a reconciliation package comes. If she does that, is she going to jeopardize potential support from House Republicans who might have otherwise supported the bipartisan infrastructure plan, but then won't want to do so because? of the holdup for reconciliation, which is Democrat only? Yeah, I think, yes, that's a possibility. She also could split House Democrats and not have uh, a majority uh, for certainty in that strategy. She can only lose five Democrats in the House and move uh, legislation. So that makes uh, reconciliation a very tenuous balance and also in a 50-50 Senate where you've got to have uh, those moderate uh, Democrats in the Senate fully on board with whatever the, the strategy is. So that's why I thought President Biden's goodwill gesture to work with Senate Republicans and try to find a compromise that it was for the most part, as you noted, paid for uh, for surface transportation uh, was a good idea. But that's been thrown under the proverbial bus by Speaker Pelosi and Chuck Schumer by demanding this very large non-infrastructure budget reconciliation approach with large tax increases. So you're right. I think the Democrats have mangled their legislative strategy, and I look forward to seeing them reconcile their strategy before they can bring reconciliation to the House. A uh, quick one to close, Congressman. Should Chairman Powell get a, a second term, and what do you think the outlook is uh, on that? I think Jay Powell has uh, demonstrated the uh, temperament, tone, and leadership uh, to earn a second term as our uh, Fed chair. Uh, That's up to the president, and I'm sure that uh, he'll make, hopefully, a good decision there. But Jay Powell has worked hard to build a rapport and reputation with both Democrats and Republicans, both in the Senate and the House, in his tenure as, as the Fed chair. 
Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. That was Congressman French Hill. Uh, and before that, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. Really great insights. Thanks uh, earlier uh, again to uh, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our Bloomberg Politics contributors, uh, as well as Ken Doyle from Bloomberg Government, who covers money in politics. Uh, that's it for us today. You've been listening to Sound On with Emily Wilkins. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.